you will be in 1 Samuel chapter 8 tonight. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Let's pray and then we'll dive into the study. Lord, we thank you for uh, just another opportunity to, to come into your house and dive into your word and, and seek you through, through worship in the word. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us in a very, very powerful way. God, very uh, powerful text um, that we would learn from, from some of the mistakes of, of the Israelites, knowing that we're prone to, to fall into the same things, the same patterns. And Lord, and I pray that if we can see even a piece of that, that tendency um, to, to, to ask for a king other than you in our hearts, Lord, that you would, uh, you would help us in, in uh, give us the ability to identify that and, and give us the, the tools to, to equip us to overcome that and, and allow you to be the ruler of our lives. Uh, so we love you. We pray that your spirit would fill each of us, um, that you would just inspire us in your name. Amen. All right. Uh, so if you remember, I'll look back at the last two chapters, First uh, Samuel chapter 6 and 7. If you remember long ago in First Samuel chapter 4, uh, the ark was captured. We see it's on its way back in First Samuel chapter 6 after God bestowed all these plagues on the Philistines and actually crushed their God uh, to the ground, their God Dagon. So the Philistines are trying to get rid of the ark of the covenant. So because they see it's a, it's a curse to them. Uh, but we see through that the Lord was trying to uh, uh, testify to his faithfulness and his power and his sovereignty to the Philistines. Not just that they would be afraid of him, but that they would accept him uh, as their Lord. So they set God up for this next to impossible task with these calves pulling the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, God obviously passes the test, proves his power, proves that he's able to perform miracles. He is a God that performs uh, miracles. And then we see the Israelites, they receive the ark back. And about 20 years later, it appears in the text, uh, Samuel comes back on the scene uh, and he leads Israel uh, in repentance, right? And he says, put away the foreign gods, put away your idols, the Baals and the Ashtoreths and, and serve God and serve God alone. And we see the people are mourning and fasting and they're, uh, they produce that, that godly sorrow and they truly repent. And then what happens after that? After they truly seek the Lord, after they truly repent of their sins, what happens in that next battle? They're victorious. And we discussed how repentance leads us to victory. Victorious repentance was the title of the last teaching. So when you look at 1 Samuel chapter 7, it's like, yes, Israel, you're doing so great. You're doing it. You're you're back in relationship with the Lord and then we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8. They were good for a chapter. Uh, it seems to, to, to be quite a few years because we're going to see Samuel uh, is old at this time. But we're going to see that they start to fall back into their old ways. See, instead of trusting God as their king, trusting God as their ruler, they're going to ask for a man to be their God, which reveals their hearts and where they're at. See, they were discontent with their king, which brings me to the title of this teaching. It's a question. Discontent with your king? Discontent with your king? You can, you can ask the question to everyone. Discontent with your king? Discontent with your king. <sighs> So I'll ask you, are you content with your king? Are you content with your king? Are you content with, with your boss? Are you content with the authority that God's placed in your life? Are you content with God's authority? See, Israel was discontent with the Lord's authority. They were discontent with the authority God placed in their life. And we're going to examine in this text where Israel went wrong. If you would with me, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1 says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. 
Okay, Samuel is old. We don't know exactly how old, but uh, many years have passed since the Ark of the Covenant returned. Uh, we see Samuel's getting so old uh, that he appoints his sons judges, likely uh, because he's he's not able to travel like he once did uh, at the end of First Samuel chapter seven. We see he was going to all the cities, visiting all his people. So Samuel appoints his sons as judges over Israel. Now Samuel. Samuel was a very godly man, and we see that even as a child, how he sought the Lord and loved the Lord, but this appears to be a sin on Samuel's part. Why? Because he appointed his son as judges and we don't see in the text judges being appointed by man see judges were always appointed by god in the bible and samuel almost puts himself in that position and he appoints his sons as judges and we're going to see these judges these two sons are are corrupt they're very corrupt so we see this was a bad decision on samuel's part judges weren't like kings it wasn't like uh, you, you passed it down. It wasn't like the, the lineage carried the authority. And when you look at just that concept, uh, we see it with the kings throughout Scripture. Uh, but when you look at history, uh, lineage isn't the best chooser of leaders. Okay, God is, ultimately. You'll see a good one, then you'll see a bad one. And that's what we see here in this case. If you would with me, First Samuel chapter 8, verse 2. The name of the firstborn of his firstborn was uh, Joel and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges and Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes and perverted justice. So we see these sons, they didn't walk in the ways of Samuel. Now, that poses the question, obviously, why didn't they walk in the ways of their father? Okay, it's one of two things. Different people say different things. It's hard to pull from the text uh, specifically. But Samuel either trained his sons in the ways of the Lord, and they just simply chose not to follow God. Or perhaps Samuel was so busy traveling to all these cities, trying to fulfill his calling as a minister and as a judge that he neglected uh, his sons and he never raised them up in the ways of the Lord. We can't be sure with what the text communicates. Regardless, these sons, they didn't, they did not walk in the way of Samuel, meaning they didn't follow after God's own heart. And despite this, we're going to see the evidence of this. First of all, it says uh, they 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 perverted justice. They turned aside after dishonest gain. So they're in the position of judges. And this is a known thing amongst the community that they're perverting justice and they're wicked kings. They're corrupt leaders. Sorry, not kings, judges. Uh, but Samuel, it seems that he overlooked these things. There is sons and, and he's overlooking their sins. And that's something that we can do too. Uh, the people that are closest to us, the people that we love, it's easy to, to, to look over their sins. Oh, I forgive you. Oh, sorry. Uh, love covers a multitude of sins. But when it's someone that we don't know, it's someone that we're not close to, the criticism, the judgment, all those things come out. See, everyone can see it, but Samuel apparently can't. Either he can't or he won't. Regardless, it appears he did nothing about this with his sons falling into dishonest gain and taking bribes and perverting justice and all these different things that they did. Uh, they remind you of two characters that we already read about, right? Who is that? Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they were corrupt. They were using the people for their own selfish gain. Now, this is the complete opposite of how a godly leader is supposed to lead. Jesus... Sorry, Peter, first Peter chapter five kind of explains what a leader is supposed to look like. And in first Peter chapter five, I'll just read one of the verses. First Peter chapter five, he discusses, he's communicating to the elders about shepherding the flock of God. And look what he says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, verse two, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. See, the desire to be a spiritual leader, really the desire to be any kind of leader, especially a spiritual leader, it can't be for what we think we're going to get out of it. How am I going to prosper by becoming this leader? 
How am I going to prosper by climbing this corporate ladder? And people will even do it in ministry. See, the desire to be a leader is a good thing. In fact, Paul says that to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. He says, he who desires to be a bishop desires to be desires a good thing. Sorry. If you want to be a spiritual leader, uh, you, you desire a good thing. But we got to remember culture. We got to remember context. They weren't doing it for their own selfish gain. When you signed up to be a bishop or you said, hey, yeah, I think the Lord's calling me to this. And the apostles evaluated and they said, yeah, yeah, you're going to be a leader of this church, whatever it is. You are basically signing your life away. Why? Because they were all getting martyred. They were all getting persecuted. There was no material gain in being a spiritual leader back in the New Testament, in the early church. But this was to be the heart of a leader. Uh, this was God's heart behind leadership all along. It wasn't for dishonest gain. It, it was all because God called us to do this and we love him and we love his people. We see that in the person of Samuel. But as we're looking at his sons, those character qualities simply aren't there. 1 Samuel, chapter 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. So we see the people, understandably, they're under corrupt leadership, okay, sort of get that, but they come to Samuel and they say, make us a king so that we can be like all the nations. In studying this, I believe always throughout creation since the beginning that God's desire, his perfect will was always to be king over his people, but... I believe God's permissible will, what we see he's going to allow, knowing the hearts of his people and that they wanted a king that they can visually see. They wanted a king uh, who was in the form of man, if you will. They they were going to ask for a king and, and God was going to permit it. He was going to allow it. And we see this back during Moses' time. If you would look with me in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God had already said that he was going to give the people a king because he knew that at one point sooner or later they were going to desire one but see god was going to permit them to have a king but he was going to choose the king and he was going to be the one that decides what type of king it was in deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 14 it says when you come to the land which the lord your god is giving you and possess it and dwell in it talking about the promised land, Israel, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Sound familiar? You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And he goes on to describe the character qualities of this king all the way to verse 20. See, God says, I know my people are going to eventually want a king. I believe from the beginning, God always wanted to be their king, but he knew the hearts of his people and that they were going to demand that they have a person, a man as a king, if you will. So God is going to appoint this king and he's going to set the standard of what this king was going to look like. Now, they say we want a king to 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 judge us now. That could cause some confusion because there's wait, wait, Samuel's a judge and they want a king to, to judge us. Basically, they're saying we want a king to, to obviously rule and reign over us. But there's a distinction. There's a difference between a judge and a king in the Bible. OK, a judge in the Bible, as I already mentioned, was always appointed by God. And more often than not, they're appointed at a specific time period for a specific function. 
Okay, a, a certain issue that the people are dealing with, whether it was Samson and the Philistines, uh, Gideon and, and everything that was going on during that time period. See, God appointed judges for certain time periods basically to lead the people of Israel out of a bad situation. And more often than not, the judges, after they were done with accomplishing what they were set out to accomplish, they would go back to doing what they were already doing before they were in the position of a judge. But a, a, a king was someone different. A king was someone that, that, that held his office his entire life or until he was close to his deathbed. And then he would pass that authority on to who? Uh, onto his lineage, onto, onto his, his sons, right? Or a specific son. And oftentimes the sons would kill each other and the last one left. That would be the king. But anyways, there's this distinction between judges and kings. And we see these people, they're asking a a king, asking Samuel to ask God for a king to rule over them. Now, this is for multiple reasons. Now, it already says in the text that they wanted a king over them so that they could be like all the other nations. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But they also wanted a king over them because they didn't like the leaders that were over them in the present. Now, they're going to request a king, but they don't know what's going to come. They don't know the type of leader that they're going to get. And this is interesting. This is the first point. People want a new leader until they get one. People want a new leader until they get one. So often people are always asking for a new boss or a new leader. I want someone else over over me as my authority because I just can't deal with this person anymore. Uh, do you notice throughout history, every single president that's in office, everyone complains about for the most part. Most people complain about the current presidents all the time. Okay, and and that's what you hear. You hear always doesn't matter who it is, whether it's Clinton or Bush or Obama or you name it. Obviously, Trump. Now you hear a lot more of the negative than you do the positive. Right. So that's the tendency. People like to pick out the flaws. But you remember a guy named Abraham Lincoln. Okay, people. So many people disagreed with him. Okay, he didn't have a high approval rating for for much of his uh, of his presidency. People hated him so much so that he was ultimately assassinated. But you know what? Now, every time they come out and they do this on a yearly basis and rank the presidents, he's one, number one, almost every time. But during his rule, during his reign, nobody, hey, he's causing the civil war and, 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 you know, we, we want to have the slaves and all these different things were happening. So many people disagreed with him. They didn't want him as ruler. People even ended up, uh, somebody even ended up killing him. All because they desired different leadership. Now we can do this in our jobs or our careers as well. We can look at our boss and focus on all the negatives. Man, he's overbearing. Man, he constantly pushes me. Man, he doesn't give me enough time off. This guy is, this guy's like a tyrant. Man, I hate my boss so much that, that I want to quit my job and, and go to a different job. Until you get a new job or you get a new boss. And then you realize that the boss that you used to have is a saint in comparison to the one that you have. And now you're like, Lord, what was I thinking? That that other boss was so much better than the boss that I have now. The point is this. The people want a new leader because they're discontent with the leader that they already have. And this is the issue. People are discontent often with the leadership in their lives. This wasn't something new to Israel. If you look back in Exodus chapter 16, I'm already there so I can read it for you. Exodus chapter 16, uh, when, when Moses and Aaron were the appointed leaders of the Israelites, after God had literally delivered them from slavery, the people still have something to complain about. And this time, it's the leadership, if you would with me, Exodus chapter 16, verse 2. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to, to, uh, 
to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They're complaining about the leadership and how Moses and Aaron led them in the wilderness. But we got to remember where they led them from. They were bound in slavery, working uh, every single day for 400 plus years. See, the issue wasn't the leadership of Moses and Aaron. The issue was the heart of the people. They simply weren't happy. It, It wouldn't matter who their king was. See, our joy, it doesn't come from who's leading us. Our joy it comes ultimately from our perspective. Now, we know that the joy of the Lord is our strength, but the joy of the Lord is offered and sometimes we don't, we don't grasp it. We don't experience it. Why? Because, because our thinking's flawed. Because we're not thinking right. And Paul addresses this really in the entire book of Philippians. Uh, and he says, uh, he's trying to tell the church in Philippi while he's in chains, how they can have a positive perspective. How can they, they can have joy in the midst of persecution? Uh, and, and, and in fact, the, the word joy or rejoicing there in Philippians is mentioned 19 times. Uh, and the word mind is mentioned 16 times. Why? Again, because he's trying to communicate them to uh, that, that, that they would understand that joy is a product, uh, not just of the Lord, but, but of our thinking, of, of our mindset, of what our perspective is. And then he goes on to say in Philippians chapter 4, he, he, he talks about how he learned contentment. I learned contentment when I, when I was full, when, when I had no food. When I was going through all these different things, I learned contentment. When I had nothing, I was content. When I had everything, I was content. And he says he's content when who is the ruler of the region that he lives in? Nero, okay? Nero is the ruler, okay? Nero is the authority placed in Paul's life ultimately, and he's content. My point is, there's not many more corrupt leaders than Nero, the point is, it doesn't matter who the leader is that, that God places in our lives because we know, Romans 13, 1, that God appoints all authority in our lives. A new leader isn't going to make us experience this, um, this, this amazing amount of joy. No, that joy comes from our mindset and it comes through our relationship with the Lord. See, the Israelites, they're discontent with their leaders because they're discontent with their relationship with the Lord. And that's that's the real struggle that's going on here. You got to remember, yes, these corrupt judges were over them, but God appointed those corrupt judges in one way or another, even if it was through a sin from Samuel. But really, their discontentment is with their king, with with King Jesus, if you will, with with Yahweh. Another king isn't going to bring them happiness. And we're going to see this as this story plays out. But the other reason that they choose another king for themselves or they ask for another king for themselves is to be like all the other nations. And this was their primary reason uh, for wanting uh, to have a king. They saw uh, kings as these powerful, wealthy, strong, good-looking men that led their people and inspired and fought for them and all these different things. They said, oh, those nations, they look powerful. We want to be like those other nations. So, so appoint a king over us so we can have what they have. But what's the problem with that? Israel wasn't called to be like the other nations. They were called, they were chosen to be a nation set apart. And we are too. Point number two, we're chosen to be a nation set apart. We're chosen to be a nation set apart. We're not chosen to try to be like all the other nations. We're chosen to be, uh, well, just that, a, a, a chosen nation, a chosen generation, a holy priesthood. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter says just that. You're, you're a holy generation, uh, uh, a chosen generation, a holy priesthood, um, uh, a holy nation. You're these people that I've delivered from darkness and brought you to marvelous light so that you can worship me, so that you can be in relationship with me. Don't be worried about the world and the other nations and what they're doing. You focus on me and, and the type of people that I've called you to be personally. We see Jesus in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, the Lord, 
is this amazingly powerful prayer. But look at one of these uh, significant portions in John chapter 17, verse 14. Jesus prays this to the Father. I have given them your word, and the world was, has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should take them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Jesus, in other words, is saying, he's saying, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. I'm praying that they're in the world, but not of the world. That they'd be in the world and they'd impact the world. They're, they're sanctified by the word of truth, meaning they're set apart by the word of God and the relationship that they have with God. But sometimes what happens to the people of God is the world starts attracting us again and 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 we have this like we we want to we want to like be a part so that we can relate uh but at the same time we know we're called to be set apart and it's a it's a fine line it can get tricky sometimes but when we try to be too much like the world, now we are called to be all things to all men, but we're also called to be set apart. When we find ourselves trying to be too much like the world, and a lot of churches will, will do these things. They'll play secular music for worship. They'll do all these little things, all these little gimmicks to get the world's attention. Okay, They'll use all these different types of nets, if you will, that a lot of these things are, are unbiblical, but we can even do this uh, as well. It could be curse words or or hanging out in places we know we shouldn't hang out with and we're trying to meet them where they're at but at the same time we're conforming to the world and what we ultimately end up doing is communicating a different gospel whether it's with our lips or with our lives i'll just tell you what you want to hear because i i want you to pray a sinner's prayer but the gospel that i preached to you isn't really the gospel i mentioned nothing about repentance or or anything like that whatever the case may be sometimes we try to be like all the other nations and and our safe uh, our our faith suffers our testimony suffers see being a christian it isn't popular okay it's never been popular and it never will be popular okay until the millennial reign okay it's not going to be popular until then all right but if we find ourselves practicing a popular christianity then we're likely not practicing the christianity that the bible teaches now now the lord says hey you're going to be hated for my namesake he said that in that prayer you're going to be hated you're going to be persecuted you're going to suffer you're going to have all these things happen to you now we know it's not all bad things but he does put an emphasis on those things the world is going to hate you because they hated me first now the israelites they don't see the blessing in being a nation set apart if you find yourself in that place and you're like, man, uh, I'm still too much in the world. Like, uh, I know uh, I know I have a relationship with the Lord and, and I want to focus on that. I know I'm called to be set apart, but, but I'm like, I keep putting my foot in the world and, and trying to relate to these people and I'm compromising my, my standard and the standard that the Lord uh, gave to me. I'm compromising my morals. If you find yourself falling back into that or, or maybe crossing a line that you shouldn't cross get back to the word why because romans chapter 12 verse 2 says this do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind right we can either be conformed to this world or transformed by the renewing of our mind. Where, how does that happen? It happens through the word. It happens through a pursuit of God. It happens in the context of relationship with God. See, it's one or the other. We either conform to the word or we conform to the world. But it's a good thing to conform to the word. That's where we're able to experience that joy, that happiness, that abundance of life. See, the Israelites, they were focused on the wrong thing. They were looking in the wrong direction. We want to be like the world. And it's going to cost them severely. First Samuel chapter 8, verse 6. But the king displeased Samuel. 
when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. So Samuel's likely displeased about a couple things, right? He knows what's happened with his sons, but it says primarily he's displeased because they wanted a, a king to rule over them. And Samuel, he knew that their king, King Jesus, King Yahweh was supposed to be their king. So this thing displeased them. See, it wasn't so bad that they desired a king, okay? Because back in Deuteronomy 17, we see God said that that was going to happen. Uh, it's their heart behind why they want a king. One, they're discontent with their king, with the Lord. Uh, and two, they're trying to be like the other nations. It's an ungodly reason why they want this other king. So this is really what's displeasing Samuel. But look at what Samuel does. It says, so Samuel prayed to the Lord. Samuel prayed. He didn't get bitter. He didn't get resentful at the people. Though he was displeased, probably a little angry, a little frustrated, knowing the love of God and knowing his people don't know the love of God. But nevertheless, he gives it to the Lord. He doesn't harbor the bitterness. He doesn't harbor the resentment. If you find yourself in that place, you're displeased at a neighbor, at a coworker, at a husband, at a wife, at a child. When you get to that place where you're displeased, do what Samuel did. Just give it to the Lord through prayer. The Lord can change our hearts. He can change their hearts as well. Look what happens. First Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. He says, heed the voice of their people. Heed the, meaning give them over to what they're asking. Give them exactly what they're asking in the Lord. He does this with us sometimes as well. He'll give us our requests. He'll give us the things that we ask for if we persist long enough. But we see in this particular case uh, that he's answering them according to their idols, if you will. It's Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 4, just so you can get the reference, you can write it down. Uh, That refers to God answering us according to our idols, meaning if we set our heart on something long enough, God will give us over to that thing. But here's the catch. Just because God answered a prayer doesn't necessarily mean that that's God's perfect will for you. He's so giving, he's so loving that he will give us over to the things that we're seeking so wholeheartedly. Even if those things are things that that aren't good enough, even if they're they're sin, even if they're, they're idols. That's why it's so important to pray. Not my will, but yours be done. Okay, Lord, this is what I'm asking. uh, And this is what I want to happen. uh, And it's important to make prayer requests. The Lord wants us to talk to him, but 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 end it with the mentality or even the communication. Not my will, but yours be done. (laughs) Lord, don't give me over to something that's going to be bad for me. Give me over to your perfect will for me, even if I don't completely understand. And it says in verse seven uh, that they for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. Apparently, God discerned that Samuel was feeling a little rejected, right? Because he's really the primary judge at this point. So in a way, they were rejecting his leadership. But God says they're not really rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And that's what this was. This request, the people's request for a new king was a rejection, a personal rejection towards God as their king. See, God promised a king, as we saw back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he promised he would give them a king, but he was going to give them a king after his own heart, if you will. He was going to give them a king of his choosing, a king that he knew who would lead well. Not perfectly, but well. But the people... They're looking for their own kind of king, a king that, that, that is pleasing in their sight, a king that externally appears like they think a king should appear. And it says not only does God say that they've rejected him, 
but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. They didn't want God reigning over their lives. God's making it clear. All those leaders that you have, those three judges at this time, Samuel and the two sons, those are leaders that I've appointed by you rejecting that authority. You're directly rejecting God's authority. He's saying, if you don't want them to rule over you, you really don't want me to rule over you. Because in one way or another, I appointed these people to rule over you. See, the people... These elders, and it was elders that came to them. Uh, they they're making this request, uh, but they're they're leaning on their own understanding, and, and they're assuming that their nation would be in better hands if it was taken out of the hands of God and given to a man. Like this is crazy, but this is really the heart. They're leaning on their own wisdom. Let's make a, a government-led wise decision. Okay, we need a king. A better leader than the ones we have. But what they were ultimately doing is trying to rip the authority out of God's hands and give it to someone that they thought could could do better. They didn't want the Lord to rule over them. See, if they had been faithful to their heavenly king, they wouldn't need an earthly king. They wouldn't want that earthly king. If they had bade, if they had stayed in that right relationship, they would recognize God's provision, God's protection, God's rule and reign and hand in their life. But this is interesting. It's somewhat prophetic. Just as God, sorry, that the Israelites didn't want Yahweh to rule over their lives. In the New Testament, we see the Jews... Didn't want King Jesus to rule their lives. If you look at John chapter 19, verse 15. After the trial. The people bring Jesus to Pilate. And it says in verse 15. But they cried out away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. They rejected the Lord's authority. They rejected his kingship. This wasn't just something they did with Jesus. This is something that they've been doing with God all along since the beginning. But what they don't realize is that by rejecting the rule and reign of God, they're accepting the rule and reign of another. This is point number three. Rejecting God's reign is accepting another's reign. Ex- rejecting God's reign is accepting another's reign. Okay? In this time period, we know next chapter, it's going to be King Saul. You don't want Yahweh, uh, we're going to have King Saul rule after us and we'll see what happens with that in jesus's time uh we don't want jesus we want caesar okay but later on in the future this is going to be fulfilled in a much deeper much more powerful way see because the people and this isn't just the israelites this is all people if people don't choose king jesus to be their king they're automatically choosing the antichrist to be their king That's what they're going to be given over to. See, after the rapture, when the church is taken up, and then uh, sometime later the tribulation starts, all the people that are left on earth, they're either going to accept the Antichrist so that they can uh, provide for their family and be a part of the economic uh, economic system, uh, or they're going to deny the mark of the beast. They're going to accept the Lord, and, and many of them uh, are going to be beheaded and martyred. Yes, they'll be saved if they accept Jesus, but they're going to be under the rule and reign of the Antichrist. Now, the Antichrist, uh, he's going to be the king that everybody wants. Right? He's going to be a smooth talker. He's going to, he's going to finally uh, provide peace in the Middle East. He's going to come up with a killer economy, a one world power, a one world religion. He's going to solve all these problems that people are going to be like, yes, this is the king that we wanted. Until what? Halfway through the tribulation when he reveals who he really is. That he is, uh, um, he, he is connected to Satan. Uh, he is, uh, Satan incarnate, if you will. And then he's gonna wreak havoc. They're gonna see him. They're gonna understand who he actually is. Now, as believers, we might say, well, yeah, duh, King Jesus, King Jesus, that's, that's my, that's my king. 
But even in the way we live our lives can express, can expose who our king actually is. In Romans chapter 6, it says this, that we're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to righteousness. Sometimes we uh, have this mentality, especially unbelievers, that, that, that I rule my life. I, I want to be in charge of my life. I want to be the boss of my life. But the Bible says you're a slave no matter what. You were born a slave and you get to choose who your master is. You get to choose if your master is Jesus or you can choose uh, your master to be sin, which ultimately is being uh, in, uh, enslaved to Satan, if you will. So I'll ask you, who's your master? Who's your king? Not just what we know intellectually, but how we live our lives. Uh, are you trying to rule your own life? When, when we're trying to rule our own life, uh, we're not really ruling our life. Either Jesus is ruling our life, or it's sin, or our flesh, or the enemy, or the world. But it's one or another. And Jesus paints this picture very black and white. You're either a slave to sin, or you're a slave to me. And you can't serve two masters. It's, it's one or the other. See, the people... They want to have their cake and eat it too. They want God as, as God, but they want their king as their king. And this is going to unfold a little bit as uh, the Lord explains in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 8. <clears throat> According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. So what we see God doing is uh, he's, he's bringing it back to, to Egypt and how God had delivered them from Egypt. And basically the people have this mentality. We want God to deliver us from our slavery. Or we want God to deliver us from our sin, but we don't want him to rule over us. I want him to heal me, but, but I don't want to have to follow him with everything. I, I want your power to purge me of these things, but only these, these certain sins. See, the sins that I'm comfortable with, I want to keep those. Lord, deliver me from these ones, but these ones I, I, I want to keep. We can't have both ways. It's, it, it's one way or another. If we want his deliverance, then we got to accept the fact that he's going to try to deliver us from everything. If we want his deliverance, then his rule, his reign, it, it comes with that. The people deliver us from Egypt. Now we're in the promised land much better, but I don't want you to rule over me. I don't want you to tell me what I have to do. So God's saying they've chosen other gods. They've served these other gods from the beginning, meaning the whole time, all along, they didn't want me as their king. They didn't want me as their Lord. They wanted these other gods. Why? These other gods are more liberal. They'll let you get away with more stuff. They let us practice sexual immorality and sorcery. And they let us do like basically what we already like to do. Actually, they condone, they commend our sin. So Lord, deliver us from the Philistines and the Egyptians and the Ammonites and the Moabites and all these people that are our enemies, but not from the sin that we like, okay? Just stay away from it. Don't touch that part, okay? We only want your power for certain things, not for everything. First Samuel chapter 8. Verse 9, he's going to describe this kingship. We'll read all the way to verse 17. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. He's saying, Samuel, warn them. This is what's going to happen with King Saul. Okay, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariot, chariots and be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties will set some plow set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be for perfumers, cooks and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male 
uh, servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And will you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Now, we see some contrasting uh, in this type of king and the king God describes in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Okay. The God, the, uh, the king that God's describing in Deuteronomy chapter 17, we see, uh, David obviously, um, fills that mold, uh, more perfectly. He's, uh, more perfectly. He, he's talking about King Saul, uh, but he's telling the people, these are the consequences of, of choosing a, a king of your own choosing, if you will. And we see this verb to take Mentioned at least four times, okay? Uh, basically, he's trying to describe to them, this is what this king is going to do for you. He's not going to rule and reign because I've called him to it and because he loves me and because he loves you. No, he's doing it for what he can get out of it. And he's going to take and he's going to take and he's going to take. He's not going to care about you. He's going to care about himself. He's going to use you. He's not going to have your best interest at heart. He won't love you and he's going to make you slaves. Is this what you want? And he tells him, hey, this is exactly what's going to happen. Is this actually what you want? See, we discussed how, how God will often give us what we want, even if it's things that are bad for us. Now, God won't just do it like, ha you asked for that. Uh, bam, now you're going to have this bad consequence. He'll try to warn us just like he did. Hey, I don't want you to have this. And I'm going to try to tell you no as best as I can. But if you keep persisting, I just might have to give you over to this thing. And that's exactly what happened to the Israelites. Now we see some of the consequences that they're going to face. And this is one of the most dangerous things we can ever do as believers. We might never say this, but how our lives express this. One of the most dangerous things we could ever do as believers is ask for our will, not God's, to be done. If God's told you no about something, if he said no, not now even, or, or not ever listen to that no, yes, we're called to persist in prayer, but that persistence in prayer, uh, it, it's, it's when God's maybe not answering and he's testing your faith and he wants you to keep see, uh, seeking him because he's testing your faith and he's producing character. But if he keeps telling you no about something and he keeps warning you about consequences, accept it. He's trying to set his people up for success. He's even warning them and they won't accept the warning. They say, my will, not yours be done. I want to reread verse 18. And you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Basically, the people are going to reg- regret their request. They're going to realize they made a mistake. Wow, we had it good when we repented and we were victorious because we were seeking God sincerely and we put away the foreign gods. Man, those days were good. Now that we have this guy, King Saul, like, man, this guy's whack. He, he, he's, he's doing all these things. He's taking all these things. And God says, uh, um, I'm not going to respond to that cry. See, when God gives us over to persistent request that he's time and time again said no to, when he finally gives you over to the consequences and then you say, oh God, I messed up. I didn't really mean that. Don't expect him to respond right away. He may just let you wallow in the consequences, in the self-pity for a while. Why? Not because he's mad at you or he wants to hurt you. No, because he loves you, but he wants you to learn your lesson. Hey, these are the consequences of your actions. This is what you wanted. This is what you asked for. I'm going to give you over to it, but I'm going to let you sit with the consequences for a while. It's going to be a while before you get the king of my choosing. And we'll see that uh, finally when God appoints uh, David. So when we persistently pray about things that are contrary to the Lord's will, yes, sometimes he'll answer those prayers, but again, we can expect to face the consequences, and the consequences, they might last a significant amount of time. He's doing it to teach us a valuable lesson. Why? We often won't believe God's plan is better than ours until our plan utterly fails. 
And then when our plan utterly fails, like theirs will, then, oh my gosh, God's plan was better. He had a king from the beginning that he was going to choose for us, and we wanted this other king. Not to confuse you, God will choose King Saul. I'll explain it next week. Um, he's really giving the people what they want. Um, God's choosing them, but he's giving the people their choice, uh, if you will. Don't want to confuse you about that. First Samuel chapter 8, verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but we will have a king over us. Like He describes the king. He's going to take, 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 take away from you. And the people still say, okay, <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of king we want. It's like, are you serious? Like, this is madness. This is absurd. This is crazy. But the people, despite the warning, they didn't take heed to God's warning. Point number four, last one. Take heed to God's warnings. Take heed to God's warnings. Now, hearing... Don't just hear God's warnings. Take heed to them, like process them and, and do something with them. It's not enough just to hear it. The people heard it, but they didn't heed it. They didn't obey it. They did nothing with it. Jesus communicating the end times in Matthew chapter 24 uh, he likens it to this in Matthew 24, uh, basically the warnings that he's trying to get across uh, in, in the tribulation to come and the Antichrist. And he talks all about these things and he likens it to the days of Noah. Why? What happened with Noah? God gave Noah a, war, a word. He gave him direction. He told Noah to tell the people, hey, this is what's going to happen because of your wickedness. Tell them to, to repent of their sins. And what happened? The people didn't take heed. They didn't listen. Until what? The rain started falling and it was too late. See, just as Samuel communicated to the people the consequences of their decisions, what was inevitably going to come, so too did Noah in his day just before the flood. Now we can look at the flood and, 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 and the king thing and the tribulation like, man, these are, these are huge things, but sometimes it's, it's the little things that we need to take heed to. Maybe, maybe the Lord keeps warning you about something. Maybe it is that persistent request that he keeps saying no to. That persistent request could even be an individual. And he's told you, no, not that individual. I don't want you to be in relationship with them. It could be a particular sin. It could be a hobby. It could be a job. It could be anything. But if the Lord's warning you, hey, stop this. I'm putting a line here. Please, please don't cross it. For, for your own interest, I've drawn this line. I've placed this barrier in your life. If we hear the warning and we do nothing about it, how foolish are we? We'd be fools to be caught on our heels when something like this hits us, when God's been warning us for so long. Uh, it's like a, a, a hurricane, okay? So I know you guys don't, like, probably not. Has anyone been in a hurricane here? Okay. <laughs> I've been in several. Um, here it's more earthquakes. But you don't have really much of a warning with an earthquake, right? It's just bam, nothing, right? With a hurricane, you have you have a good am amount of time, okay? This thing, uh, it, it's down in the southern Atlantic, and it's building up, starts as a tropical storm, starts getting bigger and bigger, and they can predict generally where it's going to go. The storm doesn't always fall the direction of the weather uh, people, but, 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 but they can have a general idea, and this thing's been coming, okay, for weeks uh, almost. You know that this hurricane is, coming and you hear the warning now when it's a category five it's like you better bail even if it's a category four even a three you probably want to get out of there i've been in in category threes uh perhaps fours don't really remember we've had hurricanes like my whole life uh but 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 the thing is the people give you plenty of time ample of time to 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 flee to bail it'd be like a fire up here uh maybe uh, so they give you time to to evacuate but so many people will say like me been through many hurricanes in my life like we don't have to evacuate my house is made of concrete i'm good we don't have to leave even though people are telling you get out of here okay it doesn't matter if your house is good you're gonna have nowhere to go you're gonna be stuck your house is gonna get flooded all these things are gonna happen if it doesn't get blown down that's not the only thing that can happen okay all these other things can happen and it's foolish not to take heed to the warnings usually we'll evacuate but something happened many years ago and then there's this uh, hurricane called Katrina, right? Um, and, and it went through Louisiana. Now, there were many warnings about 
Katrina, specifically with the levee system and how it wasn't going to hold up with the, uh, with the flood and, and it wasn't able to take the waters and, and, and they were warned about this for many years, uh, but, but the people didn't listen. The people didn't listen. Many of them. Some of them did. And there were devastating consequences. 1,800 people ended up dying from Hurricane Katrina. $108 billion in damage because they didn't take heed to the warning. Now that's a warning from man. How much more a warning from God? The consequences, they're simply not worth it. The people, they hear these consequences and they say, no, we're going to still do what we want to do because we know what we want. We don't care about the consequences. Now, this seems foolish, but we do this too. <laughs> when the Lord warns us about specific sins and we fall back into it, we know the wages of sin is death, but sometimes it's worth a measure of death to get a little fix with sin. It's like, no, like, you know, this is going to be devastating. This is a horrible idea. Don't do this. Don't think this. Don't act on this. Don't say this. But we're like, I want my king. I, I, I want to do it this way. I, I don't know if it's going to turn out that way this time. Until what? Until we're faced with the consequences and we're like, dang, I regret. Why did I? Why did I do this? Why did I say this? See, consequences are often a good tool to, to teach us to not fall back into these things. And that's exactly what God's going to have to do with the Israelites. So that they recognize that he is the king and the only king that they need. About done. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 21. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. So God says, Heed them. Yeah, we already gave them the warning. Just do what they're asking you to do. We're, we're going to give them exactly what they want. Imagine the heartbreak of Samuel. Like Samuel's a leader that loves his people. He didn't have to do this, but he would go and visit them all the time. We see at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 7, he genuinely cared for his flock. He wanted to be around them. He loves his people so much and he knows they're making a devastating decision that they can't turn back from. You ever be in this, have you ever been put in a situation where you know someone's making like a bad decision or several bad decisions and you're pleading with them like, please don't do this. Not for me, for you. Like, I love you. I don't want you to, like, this is my heart. This is God's heart. We love you. We want good things for you. We're not just trying to prevent you from having a good time. We want good stuff for you. We want a good life for you. And they, they keep following that direction. It's heartbreaking. Uh, I want us to empathize with Samuel here. His heart must be crushed at this time. These people that they love, that he loves, are, are going a direction that's going to destroy them. But I want to also want to look at the humility of the king, of the Lord. There's, there's not an ounce of pride in him. He, he's not trying to, uh, he's not trying to be a dictator. He's not a control freak. He's meek. He has power, but it's under control. He chooses when to exercise it and when not to exercise it. He doesn't force himself on the people. He draws the people. He doesn't want to make himself king over them. He wants them to choose him as their king. It's amazing when you see this humble character quality of our Lord. He wanted to be their king but he was willing to give them the king that they wanted. See, the Lord wants to be our king. And I know, many of us, most of us, probably all of us, have said that, Lord, I want you to come into my life. I want you to be my Lord, my Savior, my King. I want, you, I want to follow you all the days of my life. And, and in a way, we've made him our king. But, but is that in a regular way? Is that in a habitual way? Meaning we're always allowing him to have that rule, that reign, that authority in our lives. And the great thing about the Lord's kingship, he's the complete opposite of the king that's described here. He just gives and gives and gives and gives. He cares about his people. He has his people's best interest. Anything and everything he asks us to do is for us. 
It, it benefits us. It's not something that he's trying to get out of us for his namesake. It's ultimately for us. And yes, it mutually benefits him as well. And as we see this king, he makes these people his slaves. He makes them his servants. Yes, our master, he calls us servants, but he also calls us friends. And what else does he call us? He calls us children. He calls us his children. John says in 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Like John's like, he's still, he's like 90 now. I don't even understand how God can love us so much. Behold the manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Our King is also our Father, and He treats us as children. And now knowing how much you love a child, like it's crazy. It's like that comparison, that kind of kingship is not like any other kind of kingship. That's a king. That's a king that's, that's worthy to be worshipped. That's a king that's worthy to be followed. That's a king that we should want to rule and reign in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the position that you hold. God, that even when even when we ask you to get off the throne, you don't. You'll step aside and give us over, but you'll maintain your place in a spirit of meekness and humility and love. God, and I pray, Lord, that we would be people that are so content with you as our king, so happy, so joy-filled. Lord, and we know that that comes by, by putting you in that place and responding to your kingship Lord, and, and, and trying our best to do the things that you're asking us to do, knowing, it, knowing that you're asking us to do the, those things, not just as our king, but as our father, wanting good things for your children. Lord, so I pray that we would put you in that place, that you would rule, you would reign in our lives, that we, we, we would make you sovereign and not try to take control into our own hands, that we would trust that you're in control and that's the best place our, our lives and the lives of our loved ones could ever be. We love you. In your name.